The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. One of the best things about traveling is getting to know new and interesting people along the way. It's not just the breathtaking views or exotic foods, but the cast of characters that often gives a vacation its real flavor. But just how much do we really know about the guy sitting two rows behind us on the plane, or the person offering to split a taxi with us? Join me now as we take a look at the disturbing case of three tourists who disappeared in Southeast Asia. You'll learn how a friendly face at an airport aren't always who they seem. On March 7th, 1995, Gerard Lowe made a call from a payphone at Johannesburg International Airport in South Africa. Although he'd seen his wife Vanessa just a few hours earlier, he wanted to leave a nice message for her on the answering machine before boarding his flight. They'd been married two years, but it was romantic gestures like this keeping the honeymoon phase of their marriage alive. In the message he told her, he already missed her and that he'd call again as soon as he landed in Singapore. Gerard's flight to Singapore was a completely last-minute opportunity, but at the same time, was a trip he'd been dreaming of for years. As an electronics enthusiast, Singapore topped his list of countries he hoped to visit. The booming city-state was known as a shopper's paradise, especially at that time for high-tech gadgets like VHS players, cameras, videotape recorders, and computers. He'd worked out the math many times over the years, even factoring in airfare, lodging, dining and custom taxes. He'd save a fortune by buying these kinds of electronics in Singapore instead of South Africa. But the 33-year-old chemical engineer had always been too busy to ever find time to take the trip. But that all changed unexpectedly in March 1995, when a week-long work conference to Zimbabwe was cancelled, just days before he was supposed to fly out. Suddenly, Gerard's calendar opened up and he decided it was the perfect opportunity to finally take his trip to Singapore. With only a couple days to prepare, Gerard began meticulously planning his trip, compiling a shopping list of items he wanted to purchase. He wrote down the currency exchange rates between countries and even tracked down a Singaporean brochure that included all the blacklisted stores known for overcharging gullible tourists. Gerard was a planner, an organizer, and a member of Mensa, placing him in the top 2% of IQ. And this was exactly the kind of holiday a type A personality like him would enjoy. He wasn't just taking a vacation, he was engineering one, three days in paradise with a plan. 
packing only a small carry-on bag for his clothes, Gerard also brought along a large empty black suitcase to bring back all the goodies he planned on buying. He also brought along a roll of black trash bags so he could wrap up the electronics before packing them into his luggage. An extra layer of protection against moisture in the cargo hold. He'd truly thought of everything. He'd researched, calculated, and planned everything, down to the very last detail. Everything, that is. Except which hotel he'd be staying at once he landed in Singapore. But he could figure that out later. 30 years earlier, in 1965, Singapore gained independence from Malaysia and became its own country. In those early days, Singapore was in every sense of the term a developing country. People were poor, unable to read or write, combined with a country possessing zero natural resources of its own. But through a unique system of free trade, low taxes, extreme central planning, and massive investments in education, Singapore metamorphosed into a global economic powerhouse, becoming the financial center of Southeast Asia. And by 1995, Singapore wasn't just a country on the rise, it had officially made it. The city-state of just 3 million people was rapidly becoming the envy of the world, with the future looking even brighter. Not only was Singapore now nearly 100% literate, its students ranked number one globally in both math and science. But it wasn't just the economy and education making Singapore famous. It also had some of the strictest laws on the planet. Minor offenses like littering a cigarette butt, spitting on the sidewalk, or even just chewing gum, which was banned in 1992, carry massive fines to this day and are routinely enforced. More serious offenses like graffiti result in corporal punishment, including receiving strokes from a cane, as U.S. student Michael Peter Fay famously discovered in 1993. And for the most serious crimes, like drug trafficking and murder, it's a mandatory death sentence. But however harsh these rules and punishments may sound, the results speak for themselves. Singapore remains one of the safest and cleanest cities in the world. Gerard Lowe's flight from South Africa landed in Singapore's Changi International Airport at 7 a.m. on March 8th. His long-haul flight had taken just 10 hours from Johannesburg, but before he could fully relax, he still needed to find a hotel. So he made his way over to the reservations desk. On his way over, he felt a tap on his shoulder. When he turned around, Gerard saw a tall, friendly-looking Englishman in his mid-30s introducing himself as Simon Davis. After exchanging pleasantries, Simon had an odd but interesting proposition for Gerard. He told Gerard he was only staying in Singapore for the night and was hoping to split the cost of a hotel room with another traveler. Although it seemed to be a win-win situation, with both of them saving some money, it was definitely a little bit awkward. However, the friendly stranger was eventually able to convince Gerard into the idea. After all, wasn't saving money the entire point of Gerard's trip? After agreeing to share the room, the men made a reservation at the Riverview Hotel, a nice business-class hotel along the Singapore River, a room with two beds. Back in Johannesburg, Vanessa Lowe was expecting a phone call from her husband, 
He was supposed to call her when he got to his hotel, but it was a phone call she'd never get. Not getting a call was out of character to say the least. Gerard was reliable, punctual, and impeccably organized. But even the most predictable person can get caught up in the moment and forget to make a call. Vanessa convinced herself Gerard must have had his reasons for not calling and wasn't overly concerned, but that was about to change. When Vanessa went back to the airport expecting to pick up her husband at 6.45 on Saturday, March 11th, concern began to set in. After waiting more than an hour, it became abundantly clear he hadn't made his return flight. Vanessa was now officially worried. When she still hadn't heard anything from him by the following day, Vanessa filed a missing persons report on her husband and faxed a copy over to police in Singapore. The following morning on March 13th, a man driving a boat in a harbor near Clifford Pier in Singapore made a grisly discovery. While motoring along, his wooden sandpan bumped into something floating in the water. Slowing down to get a closer look, he saw a black trash bag tied shut with a piece of blue ripped cloth. As he took a closer look, he noticed a small hole ripped in the side of the bag where he saw what appeared to be a pair of decaying human legs. Singapore police were immediately alerted and a full investigation was soon underway. Shockingly, it wasn't exactly unheard of for boaters to find bodies, or body parts for that matter, floating in the rivers and harbors near Singapore. In fact, just eight days earlier, the leg of an Indonesian laborer was discovered floating in the same waters, the result of an unfortunate industrial accident. But these pair of legs were different. It was obviously no accident. The very fact that the legs were wrapped up in a bag implied foul play. After the legs were examined by a forensic pathologist, things only got more bizarre. The limbs were just feet and shins, severed at the knee, and determined to belong to a Caucasian male. And after close examination of the wounds, it was revealed the dismemberment had occurred post-mortem. But the legs hadn't simply been cut off at the knee. They'd been disarticulated, separated with surgical precision. The cuts were skillful, and the joints were expertly twisted out of their sockets without so much as breaking a bone. Who'd ever done this was an expert. Precision like this took practice. Police concluded that the perpetrator most likely belonged to one of several professions. A doctor, surgeon, veterinarian, or perhaps a butcher. Officially classifying the case as a murder, police now had two baffling mysteries to solve. They needed to figure out both the identity of the victim and the killer. At almost the exact same time detectives were examining the legs, a fax machine back at police headquarters received a call and began printing. It was the missing persons report filed by Vanessa from South Africa. It didn't take long for police to connect the dots. Although it was still possible the two incidents were unrelated, the coincidence was too strong to ignore. Once they had Gerard Lowe's name from the missing persons report, it was easy to run a search and discover the reservation he'd made at the Riverview Hotel. 
but they were surprised to learn he hadn't checked in alone, that he'd made the reservation with another man, a British citizen named Simon Davis. And there was another surprise. Gerard's name had been removed from the reservation the very next morning, with Simon Davis checking out alone two days later. Sensing possible foul play, detectives entered room 1511 to search for clues. It could be a crime scene. It could be nothing. Upon entering, they all took note of an odd, foul smell permeating the room, but couldn't see anything obviously out of the ordinary. Before leaving the scene completely empty-handed, one of the detectives decided to get a new perspective on the situation, so laid down on the bathroom floor and looked up. From his position on the floor, something caught his eye. A blood stain on the underside of the toilet. The part of the toilet even overlooked by even the most meticulous of housekeepers, and apparently a murderer too. It was now looking like Gerard Lowe had most likely been murdered in the bathroom. By this point, detectives began operating under the assumption that the legs belonged to Gerard and that he'd been most likely murdered in the hotel room. With these two assumptions, investigators immediately began looking for their prime suspect, the mysterious Brit who checked into the same room, Simon Davis. Much to their dismay, they soon learned Simon had already left the country, flying to Bangkok on March 11th. But there was hope. Simon's ticket to Thailand was a round trip, which meant, with any luck, he'd return to Singapore. And if he did, they'd be waiting for him. On March 19th, 1995, detectives received the call they'd been waiting for. A man using Simon Davis's passport had been arrested and detained at the airport. While cataloging the suspect's belongings, police discovered something shocking. The man was carrying six different passports. Three of the passports were British, two were in the name of Simon Davis, and one in the name of John Martin. He also carried two Canadian passports with the name of Sheila Demude and Darren Demude. The final passport was South African, with the name Gerard Lowe. But upon further inspection, something even more sinister was revealed. Although the passports bore different names and countries of origin, each passport contained a photo of the exact same man. The same man now in custody, bidding the question, was this man really even Simon Davis? Detectives also made another dark discovery. Inside his luggage was a 10,000-volt stun gun, a red hammer with bloodstains, several extremely sharp boning knives, a sharpening stone, two pairs of handcuffs, a pair of thumb cuffs, and a can of mace. Although they didn't know who the man was, they knew exactly what he was, the killer they'd been looking for. In order to investigate the man's two different British identities, Simon Davis and John Martin, police in Singapore contacted Scotland Yard in London. After a few days of digging, a strange tangled web of lies, deception and identity theft began to emerge. What they first discovered was that although Simon Davis was indeed a criminal, 
he wasn't the criminal they needed to be looking for because Simon Davis had been serving a prison sentence in England. But the trail wasn't about to go cold there because what they soon found out was that although the real Simon Davis wasn't their man, he'd once been prison mates with a drug trafficker named John Martin, a man who'd escaped prison six months prior and fled the country, still very much on the run. They now knew the real name of their mystery killer, John Martin. John Martin Scripps was born in England to Leonard and Jean Scripps in 1959, but tragedy struck almost a decade later when his parents' marriage ended with his mother leaving his father for another man. Heartbroken, his father took his own life. Leonard placed his head in an oven, turning on the gas, and inhaled the toxic fumes. Poet Sylvia Plath had famously taken her life in the exact same way, just five years earlier in London. John, who was now only nine years old at the time, was the first to discover his father's body, and he never recovered from what he saw that day. The once happy, agreeable and bright young boy began having difficulty at school, both academically and behaviorally. By age 15, John had dropped out of school entirely and began stealing from houses, the beginning of his career as a petty criminal. But avoiding capture was never John's strong suit, something that would become a lifelong theme. John's first arrest was in 1974, but he got off easy and was only fined 10 pounds before being released. He'd go on to be arrested three more times before his 18th birthday, all for burglaries, each time given a small fine of less than 10 pounds, literal slaps on the wrist. As a thief, John made decent money, and even as a teenager, he was able to travel the world, a passion that remained throughout his life. In 1980, while traveling to Montreal at 21, John fell in love with a 16-year-old Mexican girl named Maria. After the couple eloped and returned to England, John swore to her he was done with his life of crime. But it was a promise he never intended to keep. Just two years later, John's habit of always getting caught would catch up with him again. In 1982, John was arrested and charged with 40 counts of burglary as well as assaulting an officer during his arrest. This time, the system wasn't going to go easy on John and he was sentenced to three years. As you might imagine, his wife Maria was furious. Even so, she still agreed to wait for him on the outside. During John's stint behind bars, he was granted home leave, which meant he was allowed to leave jail for a few days, similar to weekend furloughs in the United States. But instead of behaving himself, John took the opportunity to flee the country and traveled abroad before returning to England, only to be caught red-handed stealing from another home and was given another three years behind bars. During that period, Maria wasn't as patient as she'd been the first time and left John for another man, a police officer she later married. But eventually her new marriage also fell apart and she moved back to Mexico, a move-in part due to John's constant harassment whenever he was let out on home leave. It was also during that period John legally changed his name, 
dropping his father's last name, Scripps, simply becoming John Martin. In 1985, John again absconded from prison while on home leave, but this time he decided to give up on his career as a burglar, instead becoming a drug smuggler for a major crime syndicate. But John was still horrible at not getting caught. In 1987, police arrested him at Heathrow Airport in London for possession of drugs and traveling under a false passport. But while searching him, they also found a key. The key was for a safety deposit box at a bank in Singapore. And when they investigated the box, they discovered one and a half kilos of heroin, a street value of nearly a million US dollars approximately $2.5 million today. If John had been arrested in Singapore instead of London, nothing else in this story would have ever happened. Because in Singapore, trafficking even just 15 grams of heroin results in an automatic death sentence. John had 100 times that amount in his safety deposit box. Instead of a death sentence, however, John was again sentenced to jail and granted home leave giving him the opportunity to escape once again. In 1992, John was recaptured and given a 13-year sentence. Surprisingly, this time, John became a model prisoner, for a while at least. In fact, due to his good behavior, John was given promotions in his labor duties inside the jail and eventually became the prison's butcher training under an experienced butcher. John spent the next six months learning how to debone and disarticulate limbs from animal carcasses, becoming desensitized to all the blood, bones, guts, and gore, an ability he never knew he had in him. It wasn't just a prison job, it was a masterclass. Now, brace yourselves, because what you're about to hear next is nothing short of infuriating. In and of itself, you might have found comical if it weren't for the unimaginable depravity that followed. In 1994, John was once again granted home leave. A man who never once completed a single prison sentence without escaping. It seems inconceivable that a prison system would even consider giving him home leave again. But that's exactly what happened. Even his own mother begged prison authorities not to let him out. She told them he was planning to escape. He'd been selling off his own possessions to other inmates, a clear sign he was planning to make a run for it. But they didn't listen, and John walked out of jail in October 1994. And as he walked out, he was carrying his final escape plan another inmate's birth certificate, an inmate, you guessed it, named Simon Davis. It remains unclear whether John secretly stole the document from Simon, or if Simon perhaps traded it for some of John's belongings. Whatever the case may be, it would be John's ticket out of England. Using a fraudulent birth certificate, John managed to obtain a British passport in Simon's name. After fleeing the country, John traveled to Mexico, attempting to rekindle his relationship with Maria, the only woman he'd ever loved. His passion for Maria bordered on obsession. But after arriving in Mexico, 
it became painfully obvious to John that he could never win Maria back. She knew she couldn't trust him anymore, no matter what he told her, and his heart was broken. Up until that point, it's believed John never displayed any tendency towards violence. But after the rejection in Mexico, something happened. A lethal switch was flipped in his brain. This seemed to be John's breaking point when the friendly, clumsy cat burglar transformed into a ruthless butcher, willing to murder anyone just to take their money. With murder now on his mind, John flew to Singapore on March 8, 1995. His flight touched down around 2 a.m., but instead of leaving the airport, he sat down in the lobby, watching, waiting, and hunting for the perfect victim. Over a period of five hours, John attempted several conversations with prospective victims, but no one was interested in sharing a hotel room with him. No one, that is, until he met Gerard Lowe. John was a smooth talker, the kind of personality most people find immediately likable, a trait he'd acquired over his nearly two decades of world traveling. After convincing Gerard to split a hotel room with them, the two men checked into room 1511 at the Riverview Hotel. Gerard set his bags down and took a seat at a small table near the window, overlooking downtown Singapore. But before he could even pick up the phone and call his wife in South Africa, John snuck up behind him and struck him in the head with a three-pound hammer. After placing Gerard into the bathtub, who was still alive, John got him to reveal the PIN number to his credit card before taking his life with a knife. Using the skills he'd mastered in prison, John quickly set to work, carefully dismembering Gerard's body meticulously as he lay in the bathtub. As he went about his work, John became sick and threw up. Although he tried to mask the smell with deodorizing spray, subsequent guests in the hotel complained about the foul odor. This was the smell detectives would notice in the coming days. Once the gruesome job was done, John found Gerard's roll of black trash bags, which he used to place his body parts in. Five bags in total, securing each of them with pieces of Gerard's clothing. He then placed the bags into Gerard's large suitcase, zipping it up and left it in the closet. But there was still more work to be done. After finding Gerard's passport, John pulled out a small bag he'd brought along just for the occasion. It was his forger's kit. Inside, he had everything he needed to forge the South African passport. A solvent to dissolve the original signature tweezers to remove the photograph, a glue stick, and a collection of different passport sizes headshots of himself. John dissolved Gerard's signature from the passport and then practiced signing the man's name on a separate piece of paper. Once he'd mastered his own version of Gerard's signature, he took out a pen and signed Gerard Lowe in his own handwriting. He then did the same on the man's credit card signature. The next morning, John approached the hotel desk and asked them to remove Gerard's name from the reservation, which they did. 
He then spent the next two days on a grand spending spree, using Gerard's credit card as well as withdrawing 8000 in cash from the victim's bank account. On March 11th, John snuck out of the hotel around 6.30 a.m. to dump the trash bags in the river next to the hotel. That same day, John checked out of the hotel and flew to Bangkok. Confident he managed to murder a man, steal his money and get away with it, the butcher would strike again. Tourists were the ideal target for a predator like John. They carried credit cards, traveler's checks and cash. Most importantly, it usually took a long time for tourists to be reported missing. After spending three days in Bangkok, John flew to the resort city of Phuket. Three rows ahead of him on the plane were two Canadians, a mother and her adult son, obviously on vacation together. 49-year-old Sheila Demude was a school administrator from British Columbia. Darren, her 22-year-old son, was traveling the world during a gap year away from college. Darren had recently broken his leg during his travels, and his mother thought it'd be nice if she spent some time with him while he recovered. Spotting the cast on Darren's leg, John decided to prey upon his vulnerability. After the plane landed in Phuket, John approached the Canadians, striking up a friendly conversation. He told them about a great hotel he'd stayed in years ago, which was true, and recommended it to them. Happy to get some helpful advice, Sheila and Darren shared a taxi with John and were taken to the Nilly Marina Inn, where they were given two separate but adjacent rooms. Later that evening, as the Demudes had dinner, John was busy making other plans. He'd rented a scooter and spent the evening searching around for a suitable location to dispose of the Canadians' bodies. The following morning, as Sheila and Darren finished breakfast, John knocked on their door, managing to sweet-talk his way inside. Within an hour, both Sheila and Darren would be murdered. It's assumed... John had incapacitated them with a stun gun, later murdering them with the same hammer he'd used to knock out Gerard Lowe. Just like Singapore, John used the hotel bathtub as a workbench to dismember the Canadians. This time, John had packed his own black trash bags and wrapped up the body parts as he'd done with Gerard, preparing them for disposal. Using his rental scooter, John spent the day hiding the trash bags around the island. When he came back to the hotel, he immediately began forging the mother and son's passport. The fact that Sheila was a woman's name didn't faze John. He knew that outside of the Western world, the chances were slim anyone would take any notice. Three days later on March 19th, John checked out of the hotel and flew back to Singapore. At the same time John was boarding his flight, a woman walking her dog discovered a pair of decapitated heads. John had escaped this time, but he made one giant mistake, a mistake that would prove to be fatal. He was still using Simon Davis's passport, a name that had been flagged by Singapore police. So when John landed at Changi Airport, he was immediately detained and placed into a holding room. 
John knew the penalty for murder in Singapore was a mandatory death sentence, a punishment he narrowly avoided eight years earlier after being caught with heroin. Overcome by his fate, John smashed a window where he was being held and used a piece of the glass to slit his wrist, but police were able to retain him before he was able to successfully kill himself. John Martin's murder trial began on October 2nd, 1995, almost exactly a year since he'd escaped prison in England. By that time, Thai police had officially connected the Demuse's murder to John, after blood found on John's hammer matched the Canadian's DNA. But since the trial was in Singapore, John only faced charges for the murder of Gerard Lowe. If convicted, it was an automatic sentence of death by hanging, a practice Singapore has maintained since its founding in 1965 and still continues today. In Singapore, all trials, including murder trials, are not tried in front of a jury. Rather, innocence or guilt is solely determined by one judge. As a defense strategy, John openly admitted to killing Gerard Lowe, claiming he'd accidentally killed him in a fit of rage after Gerard made unwanted sexual advances towards him. What he was trying to do was tell a story that would convince the judge Gerard's murder hadn't been premeditated and therefore it was manslaughter. But when it came to the question of dismemberment, there was no easy way around it. So John came up with an unbelievable story. According to John's testimony, a shady friend of his had been the one to dispose of Gerard's body, but he refused to give police or the court the mystery man's name. He claimed the man was extremely dangerous, and if he revealed his name, John's family would be in danger. Unsurprisingly, the judge wasn't buying any of it, and John was found guilty and sentenced to death. On April 19, 1996, John Martin became the first British citizen executed in Singapore since the country's independence. Since John's conviction and execution, a bevy of unsolved murders from around the world have been linked to him. The vast majority of these cases are highly circumstantial at best, and nothing concrete has ever been discovered, except for one. Although John refused to speak to detectives about the case while on death row, Scotland Yard believes John's first victim was most likely an English management consultant named Timothy McDowell. John met Timothy while he was in Mexico, trying to reconnect with Maria. The two became friends and traveled together to scuba dive in Belize. And lo and behold, Timothy was never seen again. Not long after Timothy's disappearance, $30,000 was drained from his bank account. The exact same amount was deposited a few days later in his San Francisco bank account. The name on the account? Simon Davis. John's brutal killing spree took the lives of at least four innocent people, devastating families, and terrorizing communities in six countries on four different continents. We'll never know for sure what caused the friendly and bumbling cat burglar to transform into a pure monster, willing to dissect his victims for a few thousand dollars. 
Had the wheels been set in motion the day he discovered his father's suicide? Or was it the British legal system to blame, making it possible for him to escape over and over again? Or was it because he couldn't have Maria, the only woman he'd ever loved, the woman he'd spent his final days writing love poems about? Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frasani explains how John's father's suicide may have impacted his behavior. Finding a parent after a suicide would be devastating, especially for a child. There's an aspect of shock, the image that's now in this child's memory of how the body looked and the confusion of not knowing what to do in that moment, because children aren't prepared to handle that sort of emergency. And then there's the aftermath days and weeks and likely years of having that memory ingrained in you and coming up as a flashback probably throughout the rest of your life. Children whose parents commit suicide often feel like they weren't good enough or they weren't important enough for their mom or dad to stay alive for them. It's really an abandonment that can't be reversed. Dr. Frasani further goes into possible diagnoses of John. Some mental health diagnoses that come to mind, even though we have no information that, that Scripps was ever assessed by a clinician, are post-traumatic stress disorder, disorganized attachment disorder, or a personality disorder, such as antisocial or schizoid. I really have no evidence that Scripps struggled with any of these, but these are the ones that come to mind when I speculate someone who committed the types of crimes that he did. Post-traumatic stress disorder involves going through a traumatic incident that causes flashbacks, being very sensitive to stimuli and reminders of the incident, and being easily aroused and reactive to that type of stimuli. A disorganized attachment occurs when a child gets mixed signals from their parents or primary caregivers as a kid and grows up not really being sure if they can rely on their parents for love and support, which would also involve a parent committing suicide and having that attachment disruption. And then antisocial personality disorder means that the offender doesn't care to follow society's rules and has no remorse for his actions, even when he hurts others, like Scripps' very innocent victims who did not deserve to be treated the way that he treated them. What would cause a man like John Martin Scripps to lash out the way he did? Dr. Frasani weighs in. It's hard to say, but what we do know is that he experienced a serious traumatic event as a child, finding his father's body, and then had difficulty feeling connected throughout the rest of his life. We also know that when he learned how to butcher animals in prison, something clicked and he felt called to this act, or maybe he felt good at it, or maybe it helped him get out some aggression that in some anger that he had had over the course of his life being abandoned so many times. But that's not an excuse for murder, obviously. There's no excuse for murder. Dr. Frizzani dives into how rejection and anger could have played a role into the types of crimes John Martin Scripps committed. Scripps repeatedly offended, even when aware of the consequences, which means he must not have been able to control his impulses. After the death of his father and the rejection of his wife, Maria, he may have felt extremely alone in the world and this built up anger. Some people who feel alone turn that sadness inward on themselves, which results in depression and self-destructive behavior. Some, however, turn the sadness into anger, 
that they take out on others. Scripps may have felt so angry about being rejected by those who were supposed to love him that he just lost hope. This is obviously not any excuse to harm innocent people. And it wouldn't have been a sole reason for such excessive violence and repeated crimes. Plenty of people are lonely and don't do anything like this. So more information about Scripps' mental health could really help us understand why he lashed out with such careless anger. For example, he was originally arrested for heroin trafficking. Could it be possible that he was using this very addictive drug himself, which could have caused depression and aggression? We just don't know. In looking into John Martin's scripts, Dr. Frisani came across some of his writings from his time in prison, which described the loneliness and frustration he was feeling. Here is a direct quote from one of these writings. One day poor, one day rich. Money fills the pain of hunger. But what will fill the emptiness inside? I know that love is beyond me. So do I give myself to God, the God that has betrayed me? You may take my life for what it is worth, but grant those I love peace and happiness. Can I be a person again? Only time will tell me. What really upset him, he wrote in prison, was when you are told every day that you are not a member of the human race. It remains impossible to overlook the fact that John only selected and murdered his victims in foreign countries with mandatory death penalties, Belize, Thailand, and Singapore, which seems incredibly risky if his only purpose was to steal a few thousand dollars. Or was there something else at play? A death wish, perhaps? After all, John must have known he'd get caught eventually. Because John Martin always got caught. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E